0: Hey, friend, are you looking for a way to reignite the spark in your marriage? Well, I've got some really good news for you. Jeff and I are going to host a free virtual date night on March 14th at 7 p.m. And this is going to be a place where you can discover practical tools with the Enneagram so that you can really understand one another. Right. Like we all need that. Well, this 90-minute event, we're going to explore the power of the Enneagram with the gospel to help your marriage flourish. And how are we going to do that? Well, we've got something new and unique with the Enneagram called the Relational Dance. We help you to understand why your spouse thinks, feels, and does certain things and how to navigate that dance together. So. Reserve your free ticket now at your enneagramcoach.com forward slash date night. You are not going to want to miss this. Trust me, you're going to gain so much more clarity than you ever thought imaginable. Get your ticket at your forward slash date night. And we cannot wait to see you there. Welcome back everyone to your Enneagram coach, the podcast. This is Beth McCord, your Enneagram coach, and this week we're going to continue with our productivity series and the Enneagram with a rerun of our conversation with Carrie Newhoff and his new book on how to get out, stay out, and avoid burnout. The book is called At Your Best. So let's listen in to our conversation with Carrie Newhoff.
1: Carrie Newhoff is our guest. And Carrie, for many of you, needs no introduction. But for those of you who may be meeting him for the first time, He's a former lawyer, founding pastor of Connexus Church. He and his wife, Tony, have two grown sons, and he's incredibly passionate about helping people thrive in life and leadership. Kerry has a thriving podcast and leadership business, and we are privileged to have him on the show today. And I know that personally, for me, having followed Kerry for a number of years now, so delighted to be able to talk with him about his upcoming work Uh, about the Enneagram and the intersection of all of it. So, Carrie, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff and Beth. It's uh, great to be with you.
0: Yeah, well, we're just so thrilled and so appreciative of you being here. So my first question is, I would love to hear your story and how you leapt from being a lawyer to then going into the church uh, ministry. So how did that actually happen?
2: Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was definitely a, a pivotal life event. So, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, did a bunch of things along the way, but got into law school. Thought that was what I was going to do with my life. I was going to be a litigator. Really loved constitutional law. Um, went to a to my favorite law school. So it was like you got in where I, where I wanted to go in. And then, uh, I was a Christian heading into law school, but had no thoughts like grew up in church, had no thoughts about becoming a pastor, or going to seminary but um had through a series of like somewhat supernatural experience, my background's Presbyterian, so for me to say that is like pretty big. I'm not like, "Oh, I heard from God today like it's <laughs> like a handful <laughs> of times in my life right and um yeah, I ended up. Um, I believe hearing from God, I found the love of my life at law school. We started dating pretty quickly, got married halfway through. She concurred, uh, went to a whole bunch of people saying, is it crazy? Like, am I hearing from God? Am I supposed to be in ministry? And it was confirmed by others. So, uh, finished up law, worked for a year in downtown Toronto as an articling student, got called to the bar and then went straight into seminary and then um came up here about twenty five years ago to north of Toronto, started with three little churches that eventually grew and became connexus Church, and then um yeah, ended up spending over two decades in ministry, and then stepped back a few years ago to do what I'm doing now, so it's been wow. a circuitous path
1: yeah,
0: it's fascinating oh,
1: that is awesome i mean i yeah i this um, I want to ask an Enneagram question, but I'm particularly interested in your Enneagram type. And being a lawyer, I'd love to hear more about that. But for first thing is that you're an Enneagram informed guy. I know that you've had other Enneagram guests on podcasts and know a little bit about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, how, when did you discover the Enneagram and your type, and what was that experience like? Yeah, a
2: little knowledge is dangerous. So let me just preface <laughs> saying that I'm not so an expert. No, I read a book a few years ago and um it kind of read my mail. Actually, everyone around me was reading about the Enneagram probably three or four years ago. Sure. And and I, being an eight, decided that I wasn't gonna do it because it was dumb yes. and you know, that's what other people do. And then uh some people really close to me, some good friends, were like, You're definitely an eight. I'm like what? Other people are going, you're a three or a seven. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that is. So I picked up a book, read it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this explains a lot. Particularly, I found unhealthy, moderately healthy and healthy levels of Enneagram to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then became a convert and started to get all of my friends and family (laughs) to figure out their numbers. (laughs) And it's now if you're onboarding on my staff, like we want to know what number you are. I find it very helpful in predicting and explaining behavior and particularly managing people and interacting with people trying to figure out, Oh, this is how you want to receive feedback or this is how it will feel to you. If X happens. So, um, yeah, that i found really helpful about it.
1: Now we'll go back to this uh, other question about being a lawyer. How do you think your eightness, um, played out in wanting to become a lawyer?
2: Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I, it's um there's definitely an aggressiveness to law that is concurrent with being an eight so my wife is a five she is also a lawyer uh, by training well actually by practice I didn't really practice she did and um, she loves the, what we call in the English Commonwealth tradition, the solicitor side of law. So she loves contracts. (laughs) She loves negotiation. She loves mediation. I love litigation. Like put me in a courtroom, uh, show me the jugular and I will go and try to find it. (laughs) And uh, like, I just enjoyed that. So my brief year in law, I was in court almost every day. And for me, it was, you know, it was serious, but it was also a bit of sport. Like Mm -hmm. everyone's against you and you've got to, figure out what the opposing side is going to say, dismantle it before they say it, and then convince the judge that you're right. And at first I thought that was manipulative. And then I realized, no, you're not the judge. Everybody wants to be the judge. My job is to give my client a fair day in court. And Mm -hmm. so to me it was, I don't want to say it was sport, but like it was close to being sport and it was just a blast. And that aggressiveness, that, that verbalization was... I think part of who I was and it, it, it found a good home in law. I think it, it would have been a lot of fun. I mean, God has different plans for your life than you do, but uh, I, I think it would have been really interesting to see what happened. It probably would have like an unhealthy eight and my whole life could have imploded.
1: So <laughs> sure. I had to be careful. Well, I mean, I, the next curious thing is that, okay, so you're in this litigating mindset, but then you go into the church, which uh, pastorally, I, I've not known that to be a helpful strategy, um, and just sitting around <laughs> debating with people and uh, trying to find the jugular. But um, tell me a little bit about what your eightness has looked like in pastoral ministry. Um,
2: well, again, before and after. Before I really like took on this counseling journey, I would say the eight came out in very unhealthy ways. It was not a positive force in my marriage. It was not a positive force in my leadership. There was a season when we were growing rapidly where there were just a lot of casualties, um, whether that was staff or whether that was people who came to our church, got hurt and then left, like there was, you know, and we were growing faster than we were losing people. But I look back on that and wince a little bit about how a less emotionally intelligent version of myself operated. And, you know, you're just, uh, um, Trying to figure it out as as you go along, and then I had a a hinge point in my life in 2006 when I burned out. It was a wake up call. Uh, I was doing a lot of counseling before that, and then after that, um, really began to pay attention to like my personal health, my emotional health, my spiritual health. And I remember there was a staff member about a decade ago who said to me, and this was before I knew about the Enneagram. And she said, Carrie, I want to give you a nickname. And she said, your nickname is Bam Bam. Do you remember the Flintstones? Bam Bam. You have to be a certain vintage to remember the Flintstones. but There was this character and he was a toddler who just went around like wrecking things. And she said, you don't know your own strength. You just don't know your own strength. And I became very aware of that and realized, oh, when I say something a certain way, Mm -hmm. first of all, I have a naturally a bigger personality mm-hmm. and so I can I can squash people and I don't mean to like right. to me I am one voice among many but it doesn't sound that way if you're not me so I became very sensitive to that um, trying to become much healthier trying to become much more respectful of others and trying to mute the negative parts of my personality and accentuate the positive. There are strengths like when I first learned what it meant to be an aide, I thought, wow, this feels like the report card you don't want to bring home to your parents. Like it really <laughs> does, right? You want to lose it on the way home from school. And and it was like, you know, I could see the tension points in my marriage, I could see the tension points in my parenting, the tension points at work. And so I've worked really hard over the last decade and since learning about the Enneagram a few years ago, you know, that's been one more tool in the arsenal. To try to get healthier and to realize, okay, you can really hurt people here or you can really help people here. So what yes. are you going to do with your power?
0: Yeah. And I love to kind of just snowball onto that with letting people know, like, what are type eights? Um, so at Your Enneagram Coach, we always go back to the core motivations of that personality type because it's why you think, feel, and behave, not just your, be- or, yeah, not just your behaviors. So we have four core motivations that we talk about. The core fear for the eight, it's being controlled, harmed, challenged, um, left at the mercy of injustice, but they have a core desire and the core desire is to protect themselves and those in their close inner circle, but they have a core weakness and other teachers call it the passion or the deadly sin. And the core weakness is lust or excess. And this is where they... Um, will kind of move in forward with a lot of gusto and passion and intensity to get what they want. Um, and they make sure that it happens. Now, what I usually tell people in this, you know, area is a lot of people hear the word or they hear people talk about the AIDS as being a bulldozer. And I'm like, no, they're not a bulldozer. You're, you're not seeing it accurately. And, th- and this is a real problem um, that I, I find eights are some of the most misunderstood on the Enneagram because people think of them as uh think of them as a bulldozer or a bull in a china shop but really they're a snow plow and as you know up in Toronto we i we used to live in central illinois and i grew up in kansas city when there's a foot of snow on the ground, you can't just get a Ford pickup truck with a little shovel on the front. Like that's just (laughs) not going to do the job that might do the job for like one or two streets, you know, but not the highways. You need these big diesel snow plows that will plow a path for anyone to get through. That's really at the heart of what an eight is. God created all nine types to represent him, to reflect him. Now, of course we're on this side of the fall. So An eight can use the snowplow in ways that aren't healthy, where instead of plowing a path for others and getting everyone behind them, that's the healthy way, they can start to nick people on the side of the road for not being as fast and and intense as them. Or they might just plow over people if they're really unhealthy and just kind of vengeful and, you know, don't really care. So a snowplow is a really great representation because I think a lot of people think of eights as just plowing over everyone. and I'm like, no, no, no. A lot of times it's just nicking them on the side of the road. Their intention was good, but they didn't realize who was around them and how that's affecting them. And that's kind of what you're saying is a lot of times eights come across as intimidating and eights are always surprised when someone says that they're intimidating. Like what? I'm not yeah, intimidating. Totally. I've heard
2: like, that my whole life and never yeah. understood it. I heard that when I was in high school. I heard it when I was in university. I hear it today. You're intimidating.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
2: it it's, it's mysterious to me, but I also, now that I realize it, what do you do with it? It's my responsibility to make yeah. sure. And I love your metaphor, Beth, that the snowplow actually is for the benefit of others, not just get out of my way. Here I come, <laughs> right? which is very easy for me to do.
0: Right. And I think, you know, AIDS that aren't self-aware and they're more unhealthy, they really do see them maybe even themselves as a bulldozer. Like, I'm just going to plow through here. But really at the heart of an eight, how God designed them was to plow a path for others. And we usually talk about how uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a great example. You know, you had a lot of people in the civil rights movement, but you had this one man that plowed the path and everyone was behind him. They had such a great representation of what an eight can do for others. Um, And in saying that, what does it look like as a leader who has really grown in understanding, you know, your weaknesses and your strengths how to then lead well as an eight we'll be back after a quick break hey friend let's imagine a date night where everything changes for you and your spouse wouldn't that be amazing well that's exactly what's going to happen on March 14th jeff and i are inviting you to a special virtual date night where we're going to help you to really understand you and your spouse And why you guys have the dance that you do. Now, I know you probably step on each other's toes. We get it. We've been there. We've been married almost 30 years. But the dance, this tool with the Enneagram, poof, you are going to be so amazed at how much you're going to understand your all's dance and then how to correct it in a healthy way. So if this sounds intriguing to you and you want to see your marriage grow and flourish with grace and compassion and understanding. Then grab your free ticket at yourenigramcoach.com forward slash date night. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss out on this free opportunity. Again, it's yourenigramcoach.com forward slash date night, and we cannot wait to see you there.
2: Yeah, um, I think part of that is realizing that strength and energy are two of the traits that you bring to the job. So on the positive side, you know, my wife and I talk about this always because, or regularly, she she would say, I wake up with 200% battery strength
0: yes. and it will lower <laughs> over the course of
2: the day. Yes, And she might wake up with 70% and have to conserve her energy as a five. Mm-hmm. So I have to be careful that I don't completely intimidate other people. So, you know, in staff dynamics, I'll often underestimate how long it takes to do something. Uh, It's really easy for me. I don't do it as much anymore, but I I try to stop myself. But to say, here, move over, I'll do it, Uh which is very easy, particularly in a small organization. You could be the chief officer of everything if you really wanted to. Even Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you do a lousy job at it, you've got the energy to tackle it. And so I think it's been a question of knowing where to put that energy. Yeah. So these days I put it into vision. I put it into key relationships. I put it into my writing, which is a lot of what I do these days. And um, I try not to intervene. Like there's a project I'm looking at right now. I'm not real happy with where it landed, but I got to let the team do the work. I've got to trust the process and trust the leaders who are in place. And then when... You know, we'll have a chance to debrief afterwards, and I think as an eight, it's really easy because you've got the energy, you've got the time, and you've got the angst to want to reach around often in the org chart, and you know you have an opinion on everything too. I don't know that that's an eight thing or that's a me thing, but I definitely Definitely. have an opinion on everything. It's I think everyone has opinions,
0: but yeah, eights. They definitely have fast, <laughs> fast opinions. It's like insta- fast
2: opinions. Yeah, Andy yes. Stanley says that we have talked about this because he's not an eight. He's a one,
0: mm-hmm. but he
2: has a lot of eights on his team. And Andy, who, who I've known for years, he says the eights make really quick decisions. And strangely, they're often right. Yes. And sometimes I can't tell you why I'm right. And I'm often wrong, but I'm often right about stuff. And I've also learned you have to wait, like, don't be the first to speak, mm. wait for the team to get there. Uh, we started adopting this framework called the Four Disciplines of Execution. Anyone who knows it will know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. But yep. basically, went through a two-day brainstorming exercise to come up with annual goals for my company, which is a communications company. And we have a small team. I think there were six of us at a time. There's eight or nine now. But it was a small team. And it was two days of me leading people through a deductive process to arrive at the two goals. Well, I knew heading in. <laughs> what I wanted to arrive at, but it was sure. an exercise in self restraint to shut my mouth, to not tip my hand, and lo and behold, the team and it was a they weren't slow. It was just that's how long the process took us if we followed it to a T. They came up with the exact same goals I did, mm. yeah. and I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Now, obviously, as a CEO, I got to sign off on them, but. I was really excited to see that. And I'm learning that that's how you grow faster and that's how you grow bigger over time. That if I'm always getting in the way of the team, eventually they leave demoralized or they, they stop bringing their best to work. So I want a fully engaged team and I can disengage them as an eight.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of being a snowplow instead of nicking them on the side of the road, which is you just inserting your opinions and we're going to do this, that, and the other, not giving them the space to get there. It's not that you were, you'd were you be intentionally trying to harm them. You just think, hey, I can get this done faster. I already know what I want, you know. Um, but for you to take the time and you're, but what you're saying is, hey, team, get behind me and I'll plow this path. But the way that you're doing it is by sitting back and watching them explore and to think and to grow and basically come to the same conclusion that you did, which is really exciting.
2: Or often better conclusions. Like yeah, we're now true. at the point where the team's yeah. coming up with way better ideas
1: than I would have come up with. So I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I guess it was maybe 2006, 2010, that things were falling apart mm. and you're really pushing the pedal to the floor. Staff were leaving if i understand aids i I hear a lot of times in situations like that that they can really just write people off and move on and just give no attention to the wake of damage that they have left what was it for or how did you experience that time with this significant blind spot what was going through your mind and then what finally got your attention
2: Yeah, I think um, for sure you can do that. I mean, if there's a, if you're an eight listening and there's a body, the trail of bodies behind you, like pay attention. You need to really uh, take a look at that. And it's not intentional. There was nothing malevolent about it. Mm -hmm. I didn't intend to hurt anyone, but you realize when you start to see patterns over time. So we were in a rapid growth environment. Our church was growing at 30% a year, year after year, which is almost unsustainable growth. Mm -hmm. Um, I was hiring staff, hiring quickly. And then some of them were great decisions. A few of them were not. And so there were hurt feelings. uh, There wasn't a very good system or structure. And at first I thought, well, you know, that's the exception to the rule. Like, it's just like, okay, that happened once. And then it happened again. And then you begin to see the pattern. And I mean, there was a period probably in 2005, maybe 06, where i remember saying to a staff member don't show any pictures online beyond six months because some of those people have left already like they had to be fresh pictures (laughs) now i can go back a decade in the archive and go like oh yeah you know it's basically the same crew and a whole lot more we don't Mm -hmm. have that kind of churn anymore yeah Yeah. um but that was what was the wake-up call well there was my personal crash which happened in 2006 so that was Mm -hmm. huge It was the voice of other people that I was becoming increasingly open to. And it was realizing that, huh, this has a lot to do with me. I have a responsibility for this. And uh, I don't want this to be the story. It doesn't matter how fast you're growing if you're not really helping people. Um, mm-hmm. and I was, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a bleak picture. There are a lot of people who became Christians, a lot of baptisms, mm-hmm. a lot of like really good things happen. But as we're now examining in the mega church movement, mm-hmm. you know, you can't always say, well, the growth and the fruit justifies the process. It doesn't. If people are getting hurt, um, if people are being wounded, it doesn't justify the process. So fortunately in my case, that happened before I tr- our church got to the current size. Mm. And the last decade and a half have been a lot healthier mm. than mm-hmm. the first decade was. So I'm I'm very, very grateful for that. Do I still make mistakes? Yeah, I still make mistakes. Sure. I'm sure people mm. got hurt. I'm sure I hurt someone last month. I don't know. But <laughs> I want to, I got people around me who can, and that, that's another problem with AIDS too, is you can be intimidating and you can c- create a wall of people around you, a circle of people around you who just tell you what they think you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I've worked really, really hard at cultivating a a circle that gives me honest feedback. Some of that paid, some of that not paid. So Mm -hmm. uh, paid as in therapists, counselors, coaches, diagnostics that are objective, personality profiles, and then unpaid being friends and family who it's like, no, you have permission to speak freely and please tell me the truth. And it gets to the point where my assistant will tell me, man, you or or other team members, you really hurt so-and-so in the meeting. And often I wouldn't know how, but when that comes Mm up, take notes, don't defend yourself, um, apologize, own it, and do better next time.
0: Mm, That's so good. Well, you know, one thing that I am particularly kind of curious about is, you know, how you use the Enneagram with your team, because I know that you had said, you know, as a staff, you know, one of the onboarding things is using the Enneagram, and kind of just knowing how they want to receive feedback. So, you know, the reason why I'm really intrigued with that being a type nine myself, I naturally can see all perspectives and intuitively know how to kind of interact with other types. But being a type eight, I know that's not necessarily something you naturally have. And so how have you used the Enneagram to become a really successful leader and to lead your team well?
2: Often it's in um, understanding what they bring to the team, what's going to feel hard for them. So I've hired some type ones Mm. and missing something is really difficult for them. If they make a mistake, (laughs) I know that's going to be super hard on them, and they're going to be sensitive to it. Another thing can be the way you give feedback. So mostly these days, things are going well, but occasionally when something goes off trail, uh, I have an aide on my team, and I'm like, I got to give you some direct feedback. And she wants it straight. She wants it instantly. And she doesn't want it sugar-coated. On the other hand, I also lead some threes and twos, and they're much more sensitive. <laughs> and so they, you know, you gotta almost do the praise sandwich where things are going really well. However, there is this one little thing, and you know, da, da, da. and if I did that with an eight, uh, we have three oh, yeah. eights on the team, so that's really interesting on a small team. But if I do that with an eight, they're like, stop blowing sunshine, like give me, yeah, give me the truth, <laughs> right? Give me the straight yes. goods. Just tell me I can take it. You do that with a three, and they end up leaving the meeting feeling really wounded. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is is uh, trying to figure that out. Another thing is, um, Enneagram also predicts speed to a certain extent. It's probably going to take a nine longer to get something <laughs> done than an eight. Right. Uh, a one might spend a lot more time revising it
0: mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. others
2: would. A seven will not pay attention to that much detail, so they might have to get someone who's really good at detail to review their work. Sure. So it's yeah. it's trying to understand the different personality types. An investigator will want to research, 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 research a <laughs> type five before they present. So we got, we got to figure that all out. And yeah. I think it's just made me a better manager as well as a better leader. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh man, that's so exciting. It's just exciting to hear that a leader not only has learned about their own type, but has really taken the time to understand the other types. Because usually what I find is leaders find out more about their type And they skim the surface on their workers and they don't really, and that's where the gold is, you know, to know Mm. how you affect your team, but then how to come alongside them the way that they need you to come alongside changes the game. You know, we have a type six on our team and I know that when something isn't going quite right, if I just show him that I see his faithfulness and his loyalty and responsibility, man, he feels like, okay, yeah, thank you. I I know it didn't go right, but I'm really trying my hardest. You see it, thank you so much. And it just means so much to him. And then it just kind of really makes him more loyal and and he wants to get in there even further because I took the time to understand his point of view. So just really excites me to hear that not only have you just read a book, you've actually done the work to invest in your uh, team.
1: Well, one of the real fun things uh, that we wanted to talk to you about, I've spent some time recently uh, just reading... Uh, your new book at your best. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it's interesting hearing you talk now about it, um, but you've also included some of your story in the book and what led to the writing of your book. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us, when when did you start to realize, wait a minute, my story's not in common, and that the Lord's actually given me a experience that I need to steward for the sake of others?
2: It's one of those things where probably the worst thing that ever happened to you turns out to be a good thing in the end, or at least can be used for good. So it was that burnout I experienced in 2006, which has been a hinge point of my adult life, basically 15 years before it in my adult life and 15 years now after it. And it was pretty brutal. There was no precipitating incident. I mean, there wasn't a big crisis. I just ran too fast, too hard, too long. And I didn't declare a finish line, so my body did. It's like, that's it. We can't do this anymore. So I had a really kind of depressive summer, um, struggled a lot, uh, went to counseling, got some coaching, and gradually found my way back. And I thought, I cannot go back to normal as much as I wanted to because normal got me burned out, like hit by a Mack truck. So I can't do that. So I tried to reconstruct my life. And I found these personal rhythms that started to produce exponential results. And I just kept doing it, channeling my time, energy, and, and priorities in different directions. And I found my capacity grew at the same time that my margin grew. Mm. And then to the point where about five years ago, six years ago, the number one question I was getting asked by people was, how do you get it all done? Mm. At the time, I was still leading a church full time. I started a podcast. I was blogging. I was speaking to leaders around the world. Uh, my marriage had improved dramatically, had a great relationship with my kids and not everything was perfect in my life, but it was like, I was accomplishing a lot. And so I wrote some principles down and then started teaching them and realized, oh, this works for other people too. So then put it all together in the most, um, yeah, the most together format I've ever done and at your best. And now, Mm. you know, it's available as a book. So that's sort of the Genesis story of it. But the burnout was so painful. It was number right. one, really hard to admit because there's still stigma around it, especially for an eight. We have no vul- vulnerabilities, right? right. So mm-hmm. we have no weaknesses.
1: Number It, it two, is interesting it was- uh, for Beth and uh, coaching. A lot of times uh, each type comes with a phrase of describing why they need help. And that is the why the eights need help. Mm-hmm. My body has stopped me.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Oh, I have wow. run over people. Yeah. It's a very common phrase to how they diagnose their issues.
0: Usually the body hmm. stops the eight before the eight will stop.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, Yeah, exactly.
2: No, my body, that's how I think about it now. Like if you don't declare a finish line, your body will. And there's so much research I've done in the last few years on stress and what it does to your body. It's linked to cancer, believe it or not. It's linked to brain fog. It's linked to sexual dysfunction. It's it's linked to sleeplessness, anxiety. I mean, it just goes on and on and on to weight gain. I mean, it's crazy. And so I've been focused on how do I live in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow? So, you know, what what the book is, I thought I was going to write a book about burnout. It's not a burnout book. It's a how to never burnout book. Mm-hmm. It's a how to stay out of burnout book. It's a how to get out of burnout book if you're a little bit burned, but it's the principles that uh, I've now had the privilege of teaching to many leaders about how to get time energy and priorities working in your favor rather than against mm-hmm. you because I think by default if you don't think about this stuff you're going to end up feeling overwhelmed overworked and overcommitted yes. and that's how the vast majority of people live today it's killing us it's crippling us we have all this opportunity and we're numb like we're we're just in this place where we don't, we don't feel good anymore because there's burnout. And then there's something, this is a term I created and I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinical <laughs> psychologist, uh, but I call it low-grade burnout. And my working definition of that, just working with so many leaders, is the functions of life continue, but the joy of life is gone. Yeah, so absolutely. you're functioning, you're going to the office every day, you're going to work, you're getting on those Zoom calls, you're bringing the kids to sports, you're on date night but you don't feel anything anymore. Like your heart isn't working anymore. You're not Mm -hmm. feeling the highs or feeling the lows. Sleep and rest are not really refueling you. Uh, Maybe you're self-medicating a little bit. So you're functioning. So you're like, I'm not burned out, but actually maybe you are. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a low grace. You know, it's like you have a fever, uh, a flu, for example, that puts you in bed. And then eventually perhaps in the hospital Or you have a flu that you're like, yeah, I just don't feel good. And so you go to work and you get things done. But like a lot of people have that when it comes to burnout, they're just living with it going, I like the old movie. I guess this is as good as it gets. Well, no, it gets a lot better if you can reorganize your life. And I hope the principles will help people do that.
0: Well, and it's what's interesting too, just kind of putting it through like the lens of the Enneagram is we're all going to burn out for different reasons. You know, for the eight that the core weakness of lust or excess, like you're going after what you want. And you have the energy. That's the that's the amazing thing is you have the energy and the drive and, and you can see what you want, and you go get it. Whereas for the nine, for us, it's I just want to go along to get along to make everyone happy. But by accommodating over and over and over, we get exhausted because nobody's happy ever, no matter what Mm -hmm. we do. You know, everyone is disgruntled or sad or not fully satisfied in some way. And it's like, Oh, I can never get someone to be fully satisfied, you know? And so then we get exhausted, we get burnt out, but it's in a totally different context. And so each Enneagram type can take the time to realize how am I get, getting burnt out? What is it that is constantly having me on this uh, kind of treadmill that I think, oh, if I just keep doing it this way, I'll finally get there. But you never will. And it, we need to wake up to that and, and attune to it and then reorganize our thought process to go in a totally different direction, which feels uncomfortable. I'm sure for you to slow down and to reorganize and structure your life. There's still a part of your eight that says, no, but we could, we could do it. Let's just, let's just go for this one thing. We, we can do it. Is that true?
2: There can be. Um, my team is so aware to, I have a tendency to default to yes. So mm-hmm. I think a little, my wing is a seven, not a nine, but I default to yes. And anybody who struggled with people pleasing or not wanting to disappoint people, which I think is a human condition you probably default to yes. Yes, we can go to that dinner party. Yes, I can do one more interview. Yes, I mm-hmm. can tackle that. Yes, we can do one more night out. And then mm-hmm. you eventually hit a wall where you, your mind or your body is like, I can't, I, I just can't do it anymore. Or you're doing it, but you've lost your soul. And mm. so I think, and, and technology has made that so difficult because you know if this was happening in the 80s, it was way harder to get a hold of you. I mean, there were no cell phones. There were no smart devices. Email was, I think, for people at NASA or something. (laughs) And you got letters in your mailbox like once a day if you had good postal service and maybe a neighbor dropped by. And the British psychologist Robin Dunbar says, we're basically wired for 150 relationships in our life. And Mm -hmm. he breaks that down to three to five best friends Three to five is the maximum number of people that you can have who really know you at Mm. the deepest level, 12 to 15 who are friends, and then 150 people that you probably check in with, you know, personally once a year, you go to a Christmas party, um, you drop them a note once in a while, you do the summer thing that you do every year, you see them every quarter or that kind of thing. And then technology has just blown that to smithereens where I doubt that there's anybody listening to this podcast who has fewer than 150 followers on social media. We're all hyper-connected. And now all those people have access to our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they're asking us questions and asking us for things all day long. And like, you're not designed to handle that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, one of the things that I, I loved, uh, it, it's one of the dilemmas that I face um, being so involved with the enneagram is that I'll read any particular book and then start thinking in terms of types. <laughs> um so mm. the application of these principles but I I loved your thoughts uh whenever you dis- were discussing about mindsets because e- time for each enneagram type is a tool to express their core motivations. And so that relates to what they think about themselves. Um who who am I? What is it that I want to do? about how they use their time. A one uses their time for different reasons than how maybe a six might uh, use their time. But why don't you spend a few moments just discussing why our mindset is so important to understand getting on a new trajectory in life?
2: Yeah. So I cover time, energy, and priorities because those are the three assets we deal with every day. And what was interesting about time is there's a million like energy, not very written about. So I'm pretty excited about that part of the book. And that's the part people find very liberating. Uh, priorities, got some stuff in there, but time was interesting because there are some fantastic time management books. And the weird thing is, I was okay at time management when I burned out, which was really strange. I mean, I'd read in the field and there's some brilliant people who have written on that. So I'm like, well, what's my contribution to time management? Not much. However, the mindset, Jeff, as you indicated, was so important because I realized I was lying to myself as an eight. And maybe this goes to lust, right? That core motivation. I was always telling myself, Uh, I didn't have enough time. The reason I couldn't get this done is I I ran out of time. I didn't have enough time. And if most people audit their speech and how they talk about their life, it would be interesting to do an experiment and see how often in the course of a week or a day or whatever, you find yourself saying, I I didn't get time to do it. I didn't have time for that. I didn't get time to go to the gym or I couldn't make it or I just ran out of time. Now, it's interesting. I, I had this epiphany after I burned out where I'm like, dude, you have the same amount of time as every other human being in the world. Every single other person in the world, I got the same amount of time as them. The most efficient executive that I admire has the same amount of time as I do. (laughs) That most relaxed (laughs) person running 38 companies who still has time to sit on the back porch and read his kids' stories at night. I have the same amount of time as they do. Mm -hmm. I have the same amount of time as the president of the United States, which when I really thought about it was... Sobering. And so I made myself stop lying to myself and to others. And over 10 years ago, I stopped saying I don't have the time for that because I do. Mm -hmm. I have the time to go to the gym. I chose not to take it. Mm -hmm. I had the time to write that book. I didn't do it. I had the time to prepare for an interview didn't do it. And man, that gets, when you get that honest with yourself and you stop making excuses, you start making progress. Because let's say your mom's been bugging you like, when are we going to get together? When are we going to get together? It's easy to say, mom, I don't have time this week. Well, do that for a month and really be honest. It's like, hey, so for a month, Carrie, you told your mom, you don't have time to talk to her and you don't have time to get together with her. What is that about? And you get really honest with yourself and you start to reprioritize things. So the hack that I would encourage people to try is stop saying you don't have the time. Start admitting to yourself, you didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing that, I never had time to write a book in my 30s before I burned out. Well, in the last decade, I've written five and published Mm -hmm. five. So... Suddenly I had time, and I launched a podcast, and I have more time with my wife, and mm. we don't miss date night on Friday, and we don't like, what is that? Because those are some of the most important things in my life. My time yeah. with God in the morning has expanded as a Christian. I now spend about an hour with God in the morning, half hour on the short side, an hour on the long side. Mm. Um, I have the time. I just wasn't taking it. And this is, this is bitter medicine, but everyone listening to this has the time that anybody else has. To do what they feel called to do or what they want to do, including Mm. sleeping eight hours a night. (laughs) Right. I took a nap before this interview. Why? (laughs) Because I wanted it to be good. I had the time for a nap. Now I'm a little bit better at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon than I would have been had I not had a quick nap before this interview. I had the time for it. I wanted to
1: be prepped. Well, one of the things that I know Beth speaks to often is how each type can sabotage. And I was particularly mindful of it whenever I was reading through uh, the chapter on uh, the different zones, particularly the green zone of, of gifting, passion, and impact. Um, because in, in some ways, because we bring a certain mindset from our Enneagram type to um, to how we relate to time, how we use time, the stories we tell ourselves about how we use time are all through the lens of type. Um, and so, but I I was thinking, Bethy, what, when you think of the the Enneagram sometimes does speak to orientation to time. Some are past oriented, some are present, some are future oriented, but you know, with Carrie here, it's taking it a bit step further. It it would almost be like a one, Mm. how they use their time. You mentioned earlier, Carrie, about how they might revise their work much more than someone else might, which actually might actually sabotage they may be focusing on getting something right that doesn't necessarily need to be right. It's not the type priority, um, but each type does that. I mean, do you see that in Enneagram types?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we just kind of walk through the wheel, you know, the ones are going to hyper-reform. You know, they're going to spend so much time reforming and fixing and seeing what needs to be done um, and feeling frustrated that no one's doing it, (laughs) you know, that Mm -hmm. they're the responsible ones. The twos are going to feel the utmost need to insert themselves in other people's lives to help them and to nurture them and to care for them, to give them their opinions. I remember a
1: two saying, I don't have enough time for people. Hmm. (laughs) Which means like all people have equal uh, influence over how they spend time.
0: Yeah. I mean, because they see so many, so much need out there. And so if it's, if it's at the work environment, um, as a leader, you know, man, there's so much need out there. How do I stretch myself? You know, I'm stretched too thin. And then it can cascade into kind of a Mm. martyr-like position. You know, the threes, you know, now the interesting thing about threes is they actually calculate for the most part when you think about all the Enneagram types. They usually know what they want. They calculate the time and they're pretty precise because they they don't want to fail.
1: Do they ever get knocked off out of their, their best place whenever they're trying to accomplish something to look good for other people? but it may not be the best thing for them to spend their time on. Like what? Oh, I'm just thinking because 3s read the room and you know if the organization wants to focus on this priority and one of the things that Carrie is writing about is saying like don't just use your time to be uh, to be efficient, but do it in a place where you feel gifted, where you feel passion, mm-hmm. where you know God's giving you the most impact. So it's not just, sure, 3s can do it on anything and try to accomplish anything. But is it the right thing to accomplish to where they've actually, I can't remember the, like the, they climbed the corporate ladder, but it was up against the wrong Mm -hmm. building or something like that. Like (laughs) they they lost it because they were trying to look good for other people.
0: Well, and also threes, you know, they can um, cut corners. So they're trying to reach so many goals that if they start to feel the, the time strain, like maybe it's not working out as well as they want, they'll cut corners so that they can actually look accomplished, but it may not be at the level that it needed to be. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, you could just keep going. I mean, we can, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, Carrie, whenever you think about this, the idea of green zones, what what was really the heart behind this? I mean, for me, just in just a few brief moments, reading through it and thinking through, even now in my late forties, empty nesters, I'm thinking again about the same question that I ask in my thirties that I ask in my twenties. And then I was asking as a teenager, it's like, okay, what what's this season going to be? What's different now that maybe I could have never had the opportunity to do in the past?
2: Yeah, well, most people do live overcommitted, overwhelmed, overworked, and that's why I wrote the book cuz we just hear from leaders every single day in that place. In the ministry space, stay-at-home parents, retired people are overwhelmed. I mean, it's just it's a it's a disease, it's the epidemic of our time. And I wrote the book because I realized that the sauce that I used in my own life could help others. So the secret to energy management is we have, and this is the part that a lot of people seem to resonate with and seems helpful. So hopefully it helps people who are listening to this podcast, but uh, we all have 24 equal hours in the day. But those hours don't feel equal and they don't produce equally. So I happen to be Mm. a morning person. wasn't when I was in college, but marriage and kids made me a morning person. So (laughs) I'm up before six most days, sometimes five. And uh, my most productive hours are between 7 and 11 a.m. And Mm. a lot of leaders find themselves in that space. On the other hand, you have night owls. They go from eight till midnight at that point. I'm just like, when's bedtime? When can I go to bed? I'm not at my best. And then other people peak in the afternoon. I have a lot of staff Mm -hmm. who would say 10 to two or one till five are their best hours. It doesn't matter. There's no right answer. But there is like you have three to five peak hours of the day where you're capable of doing your best work with your most intense focus. And most of us spend it indiscriminately. I mm-hmm. call that the green zone because that's when you're at your best. Mm-hmm. You've also got a couple hours in the day or an hour where you're not at your best. For me, the witching hour is four to six in the afternoon. Unless I do something workout or like I went for a bike ride today or um, to have a little nap, that tends to be really not a very productive time where my brain doesn't even work. I'll tell my team. <laughs> I have three brain cells left. Okay. So what do you want? You're going to get a bad answer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then everything in between is your yellow zone. You're not at your best, but you're not at your worst. Mm-hmm. You're capable of producing good work, just not your best work. So I'm a writer like writing, as you know, cause you're both authors takes a lot of intensity. Interview yes. preparation for me takes a lot of intensity. I do those things in my green zone when I'm at my best And what happens if you don't do that, and this is how most people live, that's why there's a big section on priorities, is you open up your laptop or you don't even have to get to your laptop. By the time you get to the office or to your place where you do your work in your home, uh, you've already got five texts. Then you open up your inbox on your phone. There's like 17 unread emails. Then you get into your project manager. It's like, oh, I got this to do. But by that time, you have three more texts. So you're responding, responding, responding. If you're a morning person, 11 o'clock rolls around. You've got nothing done on your to-do list. You've just reacted and responded all day. Then you go into a series of meetings. And 4 o'clock in the afternoon rolls around. You've got that chapter to edit. You've got preachers, (laughs) a sermon to write. You've got that strategy document for the big retreat that you have to get done. You're not done. And then, who pays the price for that? You do. Your family does. Everybody. (laughs) Your kids, right? Your kids—they don't get you. You come home, you're grumpy, you're tired. Your daughter's trying to watch Disney Plus with you, and you've got your laptop open, cheating, Mm -hmm. and you're not producing your best work. Mm -hmm. So, what what this does? The the central thesis is manage your energy even more efficiently than you manage your time so that you take your green zone, you guard it, you block out for me stuff like breakfast meetings and distractions. You turn off all notifications. You do your most important work. I wrote a really big blog post this morning, finished it up. And because that's done and ready to ship, I can be fully engaged in this conversation. Mm -hmm. If I'm not done, guess what I'm thinking? When is this thing going to be over? When can we be done? When can we wrap up? I got to get this done. Like I got to get off the clock. If that's done, and it is, I can go to bed, relax. I'm not working Mm -hmm. late at night because I figured out what was most important. It also happens to be what I'm best at. I did it when I'm at my best. So it's my best work. And now I can move on to other things. And what a lot of leaders discover, a lot of people discover Let's say you haven't had any, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you haven't had any quality time with your kids. And the last time you were with your kids, you were so exhausted, you wanted to fall asleep and they wanted to play a board game. You give them your green zone on a day off Mm. and you play Monopoly or whatever they want to play, or you go out and take them to the playground when you actually have some energy And Mm -hmm. then you really built into them. And then later on, when you're tired, you know, spell off if you're married and you take a little nap or do something for you. But then you've given your kids not leftover time, but premium time. And I think when you start to live that way rhythmically every day, that's when you start to see exponential returns. That's what's happened for me and for the leaders I've been able to help with this material so far.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And actually, it's only been for me this last year that I've been practicing this and um yeah
1: i mean (laughs) well and and whenever um we started your enneagram coach i mean that would have been in uh 2016 and then all the way up to 2019 i mean i we you particularly in creating the becoming us courses for all 45 couple types you know it you left a lot out on the field and it was like okay i can't do this again as a (laughs) i can't repeat this as a lifestyle something's gonna have to change and you know, by God's grace, we've had a, a lot of resources uh, on our team and mm-hmm. uh, help in our community to help us uh, not repeat uh, some of those negative patterns.
0: Well, and I think, you know, to, you know, kind of go along with what you're saying, Carrie, not only ha- did I need to learn what are my zones and I'm more like you, I, I'm much more creative because I'm a uh, creative content Officer here at yearning Graham Coach and to be creative and to think of all of the content that we need to put out. I'm much better in the morning hours. Mm-hmm. But as a nine, what was tripping me up was saying yes to everyone and accommodating to anyone's schedule. Or like you said, looking at the emails, looking at Slack, you know, all or looking at the notifications on all of the social media stuff that we're involved in. And feeling like I've got to, you know, whack them all, all of these things, you know, like get them all down, and then I can engage with creative content. But that Mm. that was sucking all of my energy out. And so, so now with the team's help, we have blocked off my morning hours to be to work out to have my quiet time and then to dive right into whatever content creation, it could be lots of different things. It doesn't have to be one thing, but that my morning hours are set aside for that. When, you know, obviously there's sometimes we have to make do with other Mm. things, but it's totally changed how I want to engage in the company. My passion is still, you know, is is actually up more. Now I feel more energized and excited. um, And I'm not giving my best away to things that don't matter as much. Um, And so I love this concept of the green, yellow and red zone and just being mindful and being very strategic and not put yourself down. I think a lot of us put ourselves down like, oh, I should be in the green zone all day, 24 seven, you know? Oh no, just, you're not a that's robot. It's just not how, yeah, that's <laughs> not how we're wired. Oh,
1: yeah,
2: scary. I mean, brain research shows and that what a beautiful case study too, Beth. That's exactly what we're talking about. And your, your passion goes up for your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not robots. Like as an eight, I'm tempted to say, I have a seven hour green zone. I don't.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Most
2: days it's three hours. If I'm really rested, it's five. And Cal Newport sets it at about four. Brain research (laughs) would say it's in that three to five hour window. Mm. And that's when, you know, you just have to accept that your energy is going to wax and wane over the course of the day because God made you human and we, we live under the force of gravity. It doesn't matter how high you think you can jump. Eventually, you're going to come back to Earth, right? Like that's <laughs> going to happen. And, and that's why there's the huge section on priorities in the book. I thought it was going to be an afterthought. Turned out to be the biggest section because of mm. exactly what you've said. So I did an experiment in July, which was really interesting. I took a full month off. My company was at the point where I thought I can totally trust these guys to run things. We actually, by the way, had a record month. Hmm. I didn't touch email. I set up an autoresponder and the autoresponder was really polite, but it basically said, Hey, I'm practicing what I preach. I'm disappearing for July. I will not be checking email. Uh, My assistant, Carly, I said, if there's anything urgent, she'll deal with it. Otherwise, if the message is for me, email me back in August. Now, normally Hmm. on my, this is my private not my public account where we get hundreds of emails a day, but on my private, like people who know me. Normally, I'd get 30 to 40 emails a day in one form or another. So I deleted everything when I came back. Carly did it wow. for me. Just got rid of it all. Do you know how many people re-emailed me about something I missed in the month of July?
0: I'm so curious. I don't know.
2: <laughs> one. No way.
0: One, oh, my one. gosh. That's Guess amazing. What? I'm
2: not that important. <laughs> and And we think we're really important and like, oh, I got to check email every day and I'm on the beach with my family and I got to check it out. And, you know, I went away camping with my wife and sons uh, up in Algonquin Park. We were five hours off the grid, an hour by car with no cell signal, and -hmm. then a three and a half hour canoe paddle into our remote site, everything in the canoe and on our backs, including our food. Like we were, if if something happened, it was five hours. We didn't even know what the weather was. Okay. You had to look at the sky. (laughs) And believe it or not, everything worked just fine, but we're so Mm -hmm. addicted. And I've got all the devices. I have all the latest, latest, whatever, whatever. But I turn all the notifications off and Cal Newport near AL, other people who do research into this, a couple of authors would say, focus and the ability to do what you're doing with your morning is so rare and so hard. It's becoming a superpower. And most people don't do deep work. They do shallow work because, oh, I was writing that course and then I answered five texts and then I did this. What if you could just turn everything off? If you can do that, number one, it's going to be uncomfortable because you're going to create chaos. We're so used to task switching. We're so used to, oh, I don't know how to sit still for 45 minutes and read something undistracted or write something with unbroken focus. And if you need to get up, great, then go to the fridge and get a glass of water and then come back and sit down. Don't check your phone. And if you can do that, you will get your most important stuff done. David Allen, who wrote the great book on time management called Getting Things Done, says you have to close your open loops. And what a lot mm-hmm. of people have, because you're working on you know one of your 45 courses, which by the way, congratulations, that's <laughs> unbelievable. So you're working on one of your 45 courses, but you didn't get it done during your green zone. And you're like, oh, now I'm behind and the crew is gonna be mad at me because I didn't get it done. Your brain is now thinking about that at dinner. Your brain is thinking about that at night when you're trying to watch Netflix. It's thinking about it while you sleep. If you have a word count or a chapter count and you get that done at 10 o'clock in the morning and you know you're done for the day, your brain goes, "Ha, I'm finished, Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. It's like when you cleaned out, to give you a really practical example, you know, that one cupboard that really needs to be cleaned out in (laughs) your house, that one, when you get it cleaned out, next time you pass it, you're like, I did it, I
1: did it, it's finished. Well, we just did it this weekend. It was our garage. We moved into a new home and it got over... It was but getting it, overwhelming and you
0: put it, it off, day, but we put it day. off and you put it off because you're like, oh, it's going to take too much time or it's going to be too hard. But when you actually do it, you're like, what, that took 30 minutes? Like, you know? I know, and
2: that's the thing too. Okay. Such a good point. It doesn't take that long. See, and that's a good use of your yellow zone. So you come out of your green zone, you're, you're kind of petering a little bit, but you're, you know, your battery's not at a hundred percent. It might be at 80 or 75%. Mm-hmm. You still got some juice left in you. That's when you realize you did get eight texts
0: and you Mm -hmm. go through your
2: texts and you realize most of them is yup, or you hit like, or you go, yeah, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And you're done that in two minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you go to your email and you can blast through your email inbox in about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you check Slack and you see what's going on. You do a quick video call with your team and you realize what would have taken you three hours p- piece by piece took you 15 minutes Right. when you went into your yellow zone. And yeah. then in your red zone, what I recommend when you get tired, whenever that is, for some people it's after lunch, it's for me before dinner. I do one of three things, really unimportant work. So for mm-hmm. me, that's my inbox. My, the value of my company does not go up or down with the quality yeah. of my email. So I can do that then. It's not mission critical. Uh, I can fill out an expense report. I can do some routine admin. I used to make decisions in my red zone. Mm. And then I would complain to my team and go, who made that decision? And they're like, you did. <laughs> no, I'm like, okay, no, I don't did. make decisions after 4 p.m., yes, right? Yes, yes. So I don't do that. But I'll either exercise because I used mm-hmm. to work out in the morning, but I was burning my most precious hours and I'm not trying out for the Olympics. So yeah. uh, I don't need to perform at the highest level. So, Or I'll take a nap and just rest and give my brain you know, a, yeah. a break. And yeah. then if you've got all that done for the day, you've got a, a, a like a, a reasonable task list that allows you to power down the laptop
0: mm-hmm. to put mm-hmm. your phone
2: away. Or if you carry it around, you know, I don't have to work tonight. And then you can go and enjoy your evening or yeah. whatever yes. you want to do. That's oh, amazing. That's
0: awesome. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. It's been such a delight just hearing from you, one as a leader, as a type eight, who's learned so much about yourself and your team, but also just writing this book, going through the process. We all know what that's like to go through the process of growth and learning, but then to have written it so that we all benefit from what you went through um, hopefully we won't have to go through, um, it's, is just so remarkable. So thank you. And we want to make sure that we let everyone know that your, your book is ready. It's, you know, you can pre-order it now. It's coming out. What, what day is it coming out? It's September
2: 14th. 14th. So, yeah. So right around
1: the corner.
0: Literally right around the corner. So let everyone know where they can uh, find the book, where they can pre-order, and can't they get like a free masterclass if they pre-order the book? And what yeah. is that all about? if
2: you act before, uh, well, the week of launch is the 13th, so the book comes out on the 14th. If you get the book by Friday, the, what is that, 17th-ish? Thereabouts. Okay. Don't quote me. Um <laughs> You will get, if you go to atyourbesttoday.com, you'll get access to a free video masterclass. Starting on the 18th, it'll cost you money till the 17th-ish, the Friday. It's free. And um, we sunk a lot into it. It's a video companion Mm -hmm. to the book. It's got application questions that will take you deeper than the book. And then the book is designed to be interactive. So when you actually get the book, it's got all kinds of downloads that are available for free at atyourbesttoday.com. And, um, that is the, the headquarters for the book at your best today. Don't forget the today part, but at your And then the book is widely available, independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Christian book, um, mm-hmm. Martell, anywhere you get your books, you can get that. And, uh, we just hope it helps people. I mean, Ugh. if you're tired of being overwhelmed, that's what this book will help you get out of.
0: Well, I'm excited because I know we have the book now. Cause, that's right. And that masterclass, I'm like, yes, that's what I want. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a slow reader, so it takes me so much longer than Jeff. But having that interactive tool, oh, man, I'm all over it. Jeez, so oh, <laughs> cool. Well, And there's so, an
2: audio book, as there is for almost everything. Yeah. I narrated it.
0: Oh, I cool. I must have gone fast
2: because my last book was fewer words and it was six hours. This one's just over five hours. So I must have okay. really okay. sped up. And you can listen to
1: audio books at 1.5 speed. Yes. Uh, well, well. Okay. You've you've gone up another notch in in our book because yes. uh, we tried to do read our books and. Uh, uh, it, it- that didn't go well. It's hard. It's exhausting. It's hard.
0: Exhausting. It is. I kept
1: saying, "Who wrote this?
0: Who wrote this?
2: Oh, <laughs> who writes this?" Oh,
0: wait, I did. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then, and, uh, and then
2: the uh, I had a producer in New York City with Penguin who kept correcting me on my pronunciation. Yes.
0: It's yes. like it's
2: my book. I can slur my words if I want to. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, anyway, they want to hear from me, not you. Yeah.
0: Well, that's super <laughs> exciting. So, at yourbesttoday.com, get your book, pre order it, get it so that you can get this masterclass. I know I am. Gary, or Carrie, thank you so much for just being here and being such a great example as a great leader.
2: Oh, listen, I learned everything the hard way. Hopefully uh, people who get the book don't have to. Thank you so much for having me, Beth and Jeff. Really appreciate it. appreciate all your work as well.
0: Well, thanks again to Carrie for joining us on our podcast to share his story and passion for helping those who struggle with burnout. I know I'm one of them. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we encourage you to take a look at the rest of our productivity and Enneagram series. If you found Carrie's advice encouraging and you would like to have personalized Enneagram coaching for your type, then head over to myenneagramcoach.com where you can find one of our qualified certified Enneagram coaches to help you. Next week, we're going to have our last episode on productivity in the Enneagram, discussing how the Enneagram helps provide direction and how to not only avoid burnout, but how to stay rejuvenated. So stay tuned for that. And don't forget that the Enneagram reveals your need for Jesus, not your need to work harder. It is the gospel that transforms us. Thanks for joining us.